What a wonderful job. Thank you for that. I think that uh, might be the richest and deepest version of that I've ever heard. It blessed my heart, and I think there's no better way to start a sermon on reflections than on reflecting that Christ is the King. And uh, a, a great time. I think uh, Christmas time is a wonderful time of year where we do get to reflect on on Christ coming, his first coming in peace and, and love and bringing his message of hope to the world. And um, many, many of the songs in this time are, are, are a great reflection for us. And then this being the last Sunday of 2009, we thought it appropriate to reflect on 2009 a bit and have a, an understanding of just what God has done in us and through us this year and, um, and, and then look to his word and this morning we'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 12, if you would like to turn with me there and, um, and really just uh, reflect on, on a few of the very uh, profound statements that are in this passage and, and how they can speak to us so clearly today. Um, and truly, as we look through this, we'll see that, that Christ did teach us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace, as we just heard in song. Um, I want to... Make sure that in Hebrews 12, we think of the verse 3 that says, for consider him, consider Christ. And I hope that the, the goal and the uh, drive of this sermon this morning is to consider him, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, to meditate upon him and his workings in our lives in 2009 and, um, and see that we might glorify and understand him more there. For me and for some of you, um, early on in, in 2009, my first sermon in 2009 began in this passage, um, and at that time I had planned on preaching uh, more of the verses, and I felt God say just verses 1, 2, and 3, and uh, today it's uh, my, my privilege and honor to bring the rest of those verses to you, 1 through 15, and uh, for some of us, um, this will bookend our year in Hebrews 12, and, and for some, it's, uh, it's new uh, passage for us to look at, and I think there's something um, incredibly profound and deep in these in these verses as we all experience things in our lives, and, um, and that that oftentimes our perspective gets skewed, and, and we don't see the full picture of what God is doing, and I think this is a passage that helps us bring things back to where God intends us to be. And as you're turning to Hebrews 12, I'd just like to take a moment to encourage you that over the next six weeks to to really make it your diligence to be here with us um, on Sunday morning as we will be beginning a sermon series on our new vision statement for Lakeside Christian Church on love, care, and communicate. And I think um, this is a, a time where we really get to explain to you and pour out the the DNA of our church, just what we're here for, what we're trying to to achieve, what we feel God's called us to be and where we're going and how you can be involved in that. And so um, coming here uh, over the next six weeks, we hope to bless you, to encourage you, to excite you on what God has laid on on our hearts and on our minds and, uh, and, and invite you along on that journey with us. This morning where you read with me in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1, reading through verse 15. Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, 
looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that is set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be weary and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you, with you as sons. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are you bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the, the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Will you pray with me this morning? Our eternal Father, we come before you thanking you for the awesome opportunity we have to open your word and to hear from you, praying that this morning we might unfold and unpack the truths that you have given us, Lord, that we might fix our eyes on your son, Jesus Christ, and what he's done for us, Lord, that uh, we might live our lives in a way that is pleasing and honoring to you, Lord, that we might learn from the trials that you present each of us so that we might become more like you, Lord, that we might live at peace with our brothers and sisters in the faith, Lord, that we might be an example to the community around us. And Lord, as we reflect on this last year, Lord, may we honor you and learn from it as you have intended for us to be, that we might live lives in 2010, Lord, that reflect your image to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Two reasons I really feel like this text, well, I at first, I, I thought I chose the text, but I'd rather say the text chose me. Again, this has been a, a passage that I think over a year has been really just kind of going through my mind and my heart and trying to understand it, trying to um, wrap everything this year presented with this understanding of God is doing something, God is at work, God has intended things to happen the way they have happened for his purpose and for his glory, and though I may not get the wise. I can definitely see his hand doing things. Verse 3, first off, is one reason why I wanted to bring this message to you. It says, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Consider him. To reflect upon is to, to consider. Consider attentively, to revolve in the mind, to contemplate, to reflect on this subject. This, uh, this verse here is that 
we are to reflect upon Christ first and foremost in our life, that Christ needs to be at the very foundation of our reflections. It's, it's one thing to look back on a, an experience uh, uh, or, or something that's happened in your life and just think about that experience, but if you don't put Christ at the foundation and funnel everything through him, you're missing the whole objective for it. And this, this passage says, consider him, reflect upon Christ and what he's done so that you might understand what you're going through, what your life has brought. It's not enough to just experience something, but it's the reflection upon that experience that brings understanding and, and teaches you how you might change and how you can improve yourself for God's glory. I was just given an illustration recently about Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. If experience was the best teacher and Muhammad Ali just walked up to George Foreman and got punched in the nose and walked back to his corner, then walked back up and got punched in his nose and just kept going back and forth, he didn't learn from anything. He experienced that blow. He felt the punch, and yet he didn't change. He just experienced. But if he went back to his corner and he listened to his coach and says, get those arms up and block those blows, dodge and and weave, rope-a-dope, whatever they do, Go and do that, and he goes out there, and all of a sudden he's deflecting the blows instead of receiving those blows. Very much in our life, it's like that too, that when we face trials and circumstance and sufferings, if we don't learn from it, we're going to face those again. But if we learn how to be on our guard, how to live our lives in a way that pleases God, we will have a, become more Christ-like. We will receive the training which he has given us. <coughs> Secondly, uh, verse 11 is another one of the reasons why I I wanted this passage for us this morning. It says, Now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. He's saying here to be exercised by it is uh, the the term that was used in the Grecian games to, to train, to undergo training for the purpose of competition that they would go through their life, their year, preparing and preparing and preparing that they might go to the games and compete before a crowd and, and be worthy uh, to make the team. So when we face these trials and these tribulations and these sufferings in our life, the question is, are we going to be trained by them? Are we going to allow them to train us? And if they do, we have the promise and hope of peaceable fruits of righteousness or a harvest of righteousness springing up within us. And so we have to ask ourselves, how can we be trained by them? Trials, suffering, and experiences that we face, are we going to say, what do I need to learn? How do I need to learn um, and, and apply these things to my life? But I think one of the problems we have when it comes to understanding suffering, trials, and tribulations in our life and reflecting upon our, our past and our year, we think about trials from the wrong perspective. We think about suffering and, and um, the dilemmas that we face very much as he says in verse 5. It says, and, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as unto children. That God is speaking to us as his children. That God is allowing things in our life because he loves us. And we look at them as another trial, a tribulation, a, a, a source of pain, a source of suffering, and we don't see the joy in them, we don't see the Christ in them because we have not funneled them through who Christ is. And this oftentimes leads us to be weary and, and faint of heart, causes us to lose heart because we don't consider them the way 
God wants them to. We tend to strip God out of our reflections and our, and our sufferings and trials, and we, we blame God oftentimes, and we become bitter. Not, neither of these. To strip God out of them and just try to endure them on our own strength or to blame God will bring a harvest of righteousness, but it will bring bitterness and weariness and cause us to lose heart. But isn't it our ultimate goal oftentimes to live a peaceable life, to have peace with others, to, to live a righteous life and grace? And really to this morning as we look at this passage, I want to kind of begin at the end and work our way back as we consider the wrong way and the right way to look at trials and sufferings. If, if we strip God out of our trials and our circumstances, our tribulations, and we achieve, strive after the, the impossible goal of what verse 14 places before us, follow peace with all men in holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Peace and holiness, that's what we strive after oftentimes. Peace, the, the world is seeking peace. Uh, we have peace treaties left and right, but wars and rumors and wars. Peace in the Middle East is what we should be praying for and lifting up um, Israel and, and, and just praying that God will bring peace to this world. We, we, we elect people for change, for peace. We want to end wars. We want to do all this stuff. We want to be at peace with others. But without God, it's impossible in our own lives. Holiness. God says, be holy as I am holy. This is impossible on ourselves. If we try to take God out of this picture, if we take God out of our trials and our tribulations, and we just look at myself and those around me, and how could that person do that to me? Or how could this happen at this time? Or I just don't have enough money for this bill right now. And we just look at the, everything based on our shoulders. We miss out on what God's doing and teaching us. And we're not going to be holy. We're not going to be set apart for him. And a very real possibility is, in verse 3, it says, lest you be wearied and lose heart. So I think it's fair to say that the believers that the author is writing to in this passage are under tremendous stress. They're enduring some form of hostility. They are wrestling with great sorrow and danger of growing weary and battling, uh, from battling and, and losing heart. That's a very, very present thing that we are dealing with in our own lives. Tremendous stresses. We are enduring some strong forms of hostilities. We are wrestling with great sorrows and we're in danger of, of growing weary and losing heart. When we look back at our, our trials and our tribulations and if we don't put God at the center of them, we don't consider Jesus and what he endured and how he is equipping us to face these, which leads us to our, our present human experience. The very real truth about it is in our present real experience we see in this passage of Hebrews 12 that we endure trials. And how you look at these trials is very important. But first, if we just run through these, these verses, it says in verse 5, the chastening of the Lord. Six, he chastens and scourges every son. Seven, endure chastening. He whom the Father chastens. Eleven, now no chastening for the present time seems to be joyous, but grieving, grievous. There are chastenings. There, there's trials that we face. There's struggles that we will endure. That's just a very real, present human experience that... Regardless of how you look at it, you're going to be enduring troubles and tribulations and struggles and trials. And then we have on top of that, if we're not thinking about them properly, verse 9 says, Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, 
For they verily for, in verse 10, for they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. If we kind of think of this and we just get our, 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 our concept of some trials and tribulations seem to have come from other people as they thought best. Here are fathers disciplined as they thought was best. Um, they, they did it according to their own understanding. And, and sometimes we look at human trials and chastenings and circumstances in our lives as purely this is what someone thinks is best. This is all man's contrivance. This is all man-made. They're doing it for their best and um, from their own understanding. And, and we just endure these trials, blaming men, blaming God, blaming others, because we don't understand it. And we forget verses like Ephesians 6 that says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces in heavenly places. That it's a spiritual battle that we're involved in. That the, the trials and tribulation come from uh, a, a spiritual source and not other humans. And so we, we end up not living at peace with others because our focus is on them and not on God and on what God's doing. In verse 4 it says, Ye have not resisted, resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Here he's saying like this, things may be bad, but they're not as bad as they could be. That it's very possible to, for, for things, to, the sufferings and the trials and tribulation you're facing could get even worse. At this point in, in, the, in history of, of the, the book of Hebrews, he's basically saying, you're enduring persecution. Some of you may be uh, beaten or in prison, but there's no martyrs yet. You haven't given your life yet. There's no blood been shed but, be, but watch it, because there might be a time coming, and there was a time coming, and we know through church history that um, persecution endured and martyrdom happens and, and continues on today. So we have our present human experience that trials exist. In those trials, we see conflict. And verse 15 says, Looking diligently, lest any man fail the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. In our present human experience, we have conflict with other uh, people, other believers, all the time. And how we look at those conflicts and how we respond to those conflicts is very crucial. And when we respond to them improperly, they bring up bitterness, uh, a bitter root that will trouble you. But look at this, it says many will be defiled by it. If you allow trials and circumstances, tribulation in your life to get your focus off Christ and just upon you, you'll grow bitter and angry and your bitter and anger will, will fall on many. Many people will suffer of it. And he, he really, the author is drawing from Deuteronomy 29, verses 18 through 20 says, Lest there should be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away this day from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations. Lest there should be among you a root that bears gall and wormwood. And it come to pass, when he hears the word of this curse, he blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in the imagination of mine heart, to add drunkenness to thirst. The Lord will not spare him, but the, the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against that man. Here we have a person who knows what God says and, and turns away from it and, and, and turns inwards, focuses upon himself, and then says, even though I'm in disobedience, I'm going to bless myself and I'm going to live a blessed life. And he causes him to spread this, this bitter root amongst the people. And, and God says, get rid of them. Do not allow them in. And, and the Old Testament says, drive them out so they do not bring down the nation. In our, in our lives, we need to identify the bitter root in our heart and get rid of it, to deal with it, 
deal with it properly, take it to uh, the cross, take it to God and ask him to remove it from us so that we might be a blessing and not a curse, so that we might lift others up and not bring them down. And so when we look at the fact that from a human standpoint, we have an impossible goal of trying to receive peace and holiness through our own way, our present human experience is that we're, we're constantly in the middle of trials and conflicts, but when we step back and we fix our eyes on Jesus, our proper perspective comes in. When we look at our life and our year from a Christ-centered reflection, as we see here in verses 1 through 3, then we can begin to align ourselves according to God's word. It says, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here we have the author using a word, looking unto Jesus. He's saying to fix our eyes on. It's, it's another, again, another athletic term from the Grecian games to say, get your eyes off the crowd and everything going on around you and focus on the finish line. Fix your eyes on the finish line. And, and though the first two points we had this morning are very much negative and hard because we, we, we do have a, a task and a, and a goal that, that is impossible for us on our own. And we, we do have trials and conflicts in our lives. But when it comes to this point, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, the end goal is the blessings of God, that we have a great and mighty Savior who came as a babe on Christmas Day to offer peace and love and joy, to redeem us, uh, to go to the cross on our, on, on our behalf, that we might get our eyes off ourselves, off our circumstances, and fix them on Jesus Christ, then we begin to see that the finish line is getting closer. Then we get, begin to see that the conflicts and the trials that we go through are pushing us towards him instead of us going away from him. When we look at it in God's way, we will see him in all things. We will see him working in our lives. And even when we're at that place where we want to give up because we don't think that God's doing something in there, he always sends in that, that fresh wind, that, that cup of cold water to tell us that I'm here. I haven't given up on you. I haven't left you. I'm still working. For me, 2009 was a year where that, that was very much a, a struggle for me all year long. And many of you know the circumstances and, and, and face the same things. When we're, what are you doing, God? Why am I here? Why am I involved in this? Why would you allow this to happen? I never once imagined in many years of pre preparation for ministry that this kind of stuff could happen, and yet I'm here. Do I believe that God is the God who orchestrates all things, or do I believe that he somehow managed to fumble something? Well, if my eyes are fixed on Jesus, I can only say that he is doing something, and I have to trust him that he's doing something. But if my eyes get on myself, I make God become smaller to fit in my own understanding, and I begin to lose faith, lose heart, even to the point of, of going to a very trusted friend and mentor of mine and saying, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I don't, I don't, I'm questioning my calling. I don't, I don't know what God's doing. And, and I had to be refreshed by another believer, which is, I believe, why in Hebrews 10, the author says, do not forsake the assembling together of other believers, but continue to meet together, encouraging one another. If I didn't have 
good, godly believers in my life to encourage me during the trials and the hard times, I would grow weary and I'd lose heart. And to have my counselor there to say, Brad, but I see God doing this in your life. I see what God's doing in your life. You may not be able to see it right now, but God is working. And it was an amazing time for me just to listen to what God was doing and to realize that I was looking in the wrong places. I was looking at myself. I was looking at my circumstances, and I wasn't looking at my Christ. I wasn't looking at my God. And last year, uh, we started on Hebrews 12 that the gospel is the only thing that can heal our wounds. The gospel is the only thing that can lead us to a, a fulfilled life if we fix our eyes on Jesus. And even though I preached those words, it was so hard to keep my focus there. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory that we can see him working, that we can see that he hasn't forgot us, that he has done amazing things in our hearts and our lives. And I'm proud to stand up here today and say I, I praise God for Jesus Christ and what he's done in my life to allow me to even stand before you today. And I'm worthy, but I'm thankful that I can be here. And part of it is because I had to be reintroduced to my, my Lord and my Savior this year. I had to realize that I'm looking at him with the wrong lenses. And maybe, maybe this morning in the last uh, few moments we have that I can reintroduce you to this Jesus who loves you so much and who desires you to not focus on trials and sufferings and tribulations of 2009 or, or previous years in life, but to, to fix your eyes on Jesus, to learn from the experience, to be more Christ-like, to be more like him, to have a love relationship with him. Let me ask you this, if you hear this verse, how do you picture God or Jesus saying this to you? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And this is one thing I had to be shown this year that I, if you're like me, I kind of got this picture of my grandmother going like, now Brad, you, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. Kind of like a judgmental, criticizing, you know, finger-waving God, saying, This is what you're going to do. And I realized my picture of Jesus over this year has become a critical, judgmental God where I could never match up. I could never do what's right. But if we turn to to John 14 for a moment and we look at this verse in the context it was given, if we read in verse 13, it says, And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and if I will pray to the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that that he may abide with you forever. Now Jesus is saying here, here's a promise. If you love me, whatever you ask, I will give you. You just have to ask it in my name, and I'm going to give it to you. And not only that, I'm going, to, I'm going to ask God to give you the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, to come and indwell you, to live within you. I'm going to bless you. These are promises. And when we put this in the context of the promise, when Jesus says in verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, he's saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's just going to happen. It's going to flow from the love that you have for me. You will be like me. You will live like I live. You will be with me. And then 
again going into chapter 15, it says, if we abide in him and he in us, we will bear much fruit. The abiding in him, the getting into the word of God, to love God, to learn to, to know him is how we fix our eyes on Jesus, to be like him. Consider this Jesus, if we just uh, flip over to John 11, a couple pages previous here. When we see that Jesus is talking to, uh, um, to Mary, um, we'll just pick up in verse 32. It says, Then when Mary was come whether, where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? And they said unto him, The Lord said unto him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Then said Jesus to the Jews, Behold how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? When we consider this verse here, we, we stop here. Jesus knew that he was coming to raise Lazarus from the dead. He had actually mentioned that to his disciple. I'm thankful that I did not go and, and heal him before he died for your sake, because I'm going to go and show you the power that God has. But he hears Mary. He sees Mary, and he, his spirit groaned, and then he wept in her sorrow. Mary had, had saw Jesus, a beloved, trusted friend, and said, Jesus, you let me down. You could have healed my brother. Where were you? She had lost heart because this great healer did not come to his friend. He wasn't there in my time of need. She felt hurt. She felt at a loss. And Jesus didn't come up and scold her and say, Now Mary, this is all in my plan. I'm just going to heal you. I'm going to raise him from the dead. Why heal somebody when I can raise him from the dead? What a spectacle that will be. Everybody will see this in glory in me because of this. Though that's what's going to happen, he, he wept with her. He had compassion upon her. This Jesus that we have, this Savior who came as a babe, is a compassionate Savior who knows we hurt. Who when I was crying in my trials and, uh, and suffering, he was crying with me. That when you're hurting and crying, Jesus is crying with you because he hurts with those who hurts. And it's just an exciting Jesus that we have here. Or if we continue, can keep going back in John to chapter 8, we see in verses 1 through 11, Jesus went up onto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that we should, that she should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with one finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And he again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted of their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest and even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. 
When Jesus had lifted up himself and he saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those that accuse you? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Here we have a, a Jesus who is not a, a condemning Jesus or saying, here is a sinner. She's caught in the axe, stone her. That's what the law says. Let's get it done with. That's, that's the proper and right thing to do. No, instead we have a Jesus here who says, not only is he standing there, he, he kneels down. He gets on the ground and he writes. It says, whoever has no sin, let them cast the first stone. There is one man there who could cast a stone, Jesus Christ. But instead, he's a compassionate, gentle, caring Savior who gets down to her level when everybody else disappears. He doesn't condemn her, and he doesn't condone her sin. But he meets her where she's at. He cares for her and welcomes her and says, where are those who condemn you? Neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. He doesn't justify her sin. He doesn't excuse her sin. doesn't allow her to go continue in sin, but he says, I'm not going to judge you, but don't continue in sin. And she goes from that point. And, and we have this Jesus who is a compassionate, caring, loving Jesus who gets down on the ground to our level and is there for us, to welcome us, to love us, to gently confront us and tell us, don't continue in sin. So when we, when we look at Jesus, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, if we believe that, he began this work in us. He authored that salvation. And he's the completer of our faith. That means he's not forgotten you. That means he, he hasn't left you to endure trials and tribulations without him. So we look to Jesus. We funnel our experiences through Jesus. And verse 3 says, Considered him. Again, Every time we reflect, if we put Christ at the center of our reflection, man, that was a hard time. What was Christ teaching me? What was God doing in this moment? What can I learn from him? We will not grow weary. We will not lose heart, but we will reflect Christ. Philippians 2 says this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, was made in his likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. We have a, a Savior that if we funnel our, our, our life experiences through him, who he is, and how he responded, we have a a God who humbled himself, who, who, who lowered himself even unto death for us. That when I face a trial and a tribulation, that if I look to him and say, what would Christ do? How did he live this out? How did he face suffering? And how can I reflect that? When we, when we funnel our things through his teachings, as he taught in Matthew twenty two thirty six through 40, he says, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great command. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This is, this is an area where I've been challenged recently about how all the law and the prophets hang on these commandments. All the word of God hangs on loving God and loving others. And when I, when I pick up this book... And, and I forget to look at it with love for God and love for others, I abuse it. 
I use it against others. I may have truth to my my words, but I haven't brought the love that God intended it for. We have this loving, compassionate, caring God that says, love others. Love me first and foremost. Love God with all you have, all you are, and love others. And when we do that, we start to see his word come alive in our hearts and our lives so that when we look at God through love and through what he's doing, we can rejoice because of what is doing in conflict and trials and strugglings. When we see that in verse 5 in chapter 12, it says, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. He's saying, listen, if you go through trials and temptations and struggles and, and suffering, it's because God loves you. And when, when I'm in that, that darkest hour and I, and I feel faint and I'm losing heart, if I could stop and think and say, God is allowing this because he's purging me, because he loves me. You know, how, how many of us ask questions in our lives at times when we're facing something, does God really love me? Does God really love me? If he loves me, why would he allow this in my life? And here he's saying, I'm doing it for your good. In verse 10 it says, For verily for a few days our earthly fathers chastened us as their own pleasure, but, but God for our profit that he might, we might be partakers of his holiness. The, the chasing of this discipline doesn't seem pleasant at the time, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards it will yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them who are exercised thereby. If we look at these trials, if we look at the last year of my life, and I, and I look at it and I say, God, you are doing something, and I know you are present, I know you're doing something, I know you're still doing something, show me that. Show me you through this. Teach me what I need to learn. Help rid me of my foolish pride. Help rid me of my, my selfishness, my greed. Lord, let me be like you. Let me use this experience to fix my eyes on you, to see you doing things for. Man will fail me, but God never will. He promises us in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he which began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. What we have in Hebrews 12 is this this, uh, exposition that the the author gives us that God is at work in the day-to-day trials and tribulations of our life. Not only is he at work, he is allowing them for our good because he loves you, because he wants you to be more like him, and he wants to draw you to him, and he asks us to run to him, to embrace him, because he loves us, because he's a compassionate, caring savior. So for me, this is kind of sums up my year of reflections on the gospel that I have to fix my eyes on Jesus. I have to look at him and what he endured. I have to be reminded of, of the, the wonderful works that he's done, that he is the God who created all things, who began history, who began time, who spoke the earth into existence, who called uh, just the, the stars and the lights, the sun, the earth, into existence by speaking a word. That he planned history, starting in the Garden of Eden with a promise that after the fall, that the Savior, the Messiah, will come. That he orchestrated all these events to send his son, Jesus Christ, on Christmas morning over 2,000 years ago so that he might go to that cross and shed his blood for our sins and being buried, rise from the dead, the third day, giving us victory over sin and death, that we might know him, that we might have a relationship with God. 
That's what Hebrews 12 is about. That's why he's reminding us and pleading with us, don't give up. If you feel like you've had a tough year, if you feel like you're having conflicts and, and trials and struggles in your life, as we all do, don't give up. God loves you. God's working in you. God wants you to know him. He wants you to see him more clearly. And this morning, I think there's no better way to, to wrap up a reflection upon the year and upon this passage than to reflect upon Christ and, and, and his sacrifice for us in the communion table. And as, I, um, as we do, I'd just like to, to consider just a few verses from 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Just to, to, to focus our hearts at that last day, that last moment, that time that, that, that Christ was here with his disciples. And leaning into the last part of his life, this, this loving, caring, compassionate Savior who gently confronts and calls people into a relationship with him to, to wrap them in his arms. He sat at the last table with them. And Paul puts it this way, For I received from of the Lord, in verse 23, that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And we had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh the damnation unto himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would, should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait one for another. This morning, as we turn our hearts to the communion table, it's good for us to remember that this is something Jesus set up as a symbol, as a reminder of what he was about to do, that he was going to allow his body to be broken and his blood to be spilled out for our sins. And he invites all believers to come to this table to partake in this, to remember, to reflect upon, to look at our lives and see the grace of God and what he has done in us, that he would welcome sinners like you and me into his family through his son Jesus Christ, that he would forgive our sins. In Romans, we're reminded that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so this morning, if you're a believer, I'd like to invite you to partake in the, the table with us that you might reflect and remember and celebrate the glorious, gracious gift that God gave us. As we um, partake, we're going to have our, our ushers come and they're going to pass out the bread and the cup and we're going to ask you to wait until we all receive and, and we do, we'll read the passage together and we'll all partake together as we wait on one another to experience the communion table and fellowship with one another. And so at this time, I'd like to invite the brothers who helped serve this morning to come forward. And uh, if we just take a moment and reflect on our lives and uh, prepare our hearts.